Welcome to the Cochrane Trainees Podcast, brought to you by Cochrane UK, inspiring medical and dental trainees to engage in evidence. Hello, my name is Rachel, I'm one of the Cochrane UK Training Committee, and I'm here with Professor John Newton of Public Health England today. Hello. Well, hello Rachel, and thank you very much for asking me to do this interview. Um, so it's great to have you today. Um, I really wanted to pick your brains a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Okay, well, at the moment, uh, I am the Chief Knowledge Officer for Public Health England, which is an extraordinary job. Uh, in fact, Public Health England is an unusual organisation. It's, it's the National Public Health Agency, which has only been in existence in 2013, and I was appointed as the first Chief Knowledge Officer. Um, my current job is about using evidence and data uh, to influence policy and practice nationally and locally. Huge amounts going on, which we could talk about a little bit. In the past, um, I started out as a clinical doctor. I was a physician, a dermatologist, um, I did some tropical medicine, uh, and I gradually moved into public health through another, a number of other jobs in research to where I am now. And what was it that made you want to make that transition from clinical medicine to more of a research role? Well, probably like many people's careers, there's a certain amount of um, just serendipity. Yeah. Um, uh, I enjoyed clinical medicine. I enjoyed dermatology. It was very satisfying. Um, at the time, there was a report from uh, HSM, the then CMO, about the need for more doctors to do infectious disease control. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were opportunities there. But I also came across some really inspirational people in Oxford, people like Samir Gray, uh, who really uh, conveyed to me the opportunity to do more in public health than I could ever think I could do in clinical medicine. Do you, do you think that your perspective has changed since you started, obviously you started off your career looking after individual patients mm. and you're now responsible for sort of shaping policy for you know, hundreds of thousands of people across, across the UK. How do you think your perspective has changed in that time? I think it has, um, although perhaps not as much as you might think. And in fact, I, I come from a medical family. My father was a neurosurgeon, my brother's a general practitioner, my mother was a theatre nurse. And in fact, I could, I've got doctors going back for decades. Um, my father, although a neurosurgeon, had also done some public health uh, during the Second World War. Um, so I think there is a commonality. The big difference is that, for me, the patient is the population, uh, whereas for an individual doctor, it's the patient in front of you. Although, increasingly, I think doctors are realising that a population approach is relevant to everybody. We should, we should be thinking about all those people who haven't yet been to see us, and especially as we talk more about prevention, yes, people should absolutely. be thinking about how do we stop people getting ill and how do we stop them coming along. So the difference between public health and clinical medicine is important, but it's not an absolute difference. I know you were recently involved in setting up the UK Biobank. Mm. We're really interested to hear what it was like setting it yes. up and if you had yes. any insights into that. Well, bizarre, bizarrely, one of the reasons I moved out of dermatology is because I didn't want to get involved in research, because a lot of the research <laughs> that we were being asked to do was very commercially driven. Mm. Um, so I was a bit of a re research refusing. Um, but then uh, I ended up becoming the director of uh, R&D at the John Radcliffe Hospital, which, which was a phenomenal opportunity. We had 400 research active uh, doctors. Now, why did I, I... I got into that because, again, through relationships and meeting the medical director of the hospital who needed help with the research, mm. uh, and we were talking to him about 
the population approach. Um, and there's a certain approach which you learn in public health, which is to start from the data uh, and to try and make general deductions which help people make better decisions. And I, I think that was the key to why people thought I could help them as director of R&D. I was able to look at all the different, look at the cardiologists, the cancer specialists and the basic scientists and, and have some understanding of all of them uh, in such a way that I could assess the strengths and weaknesses of the different approaches. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on, I suppose, the use of big data in driving yes. research at the moment. Uh, clearly that's becoming more of a uh, more of a thing nowadays because you've got the UK Biobank and the uh, CPRD database and yes. talking about the global disease burden as well. Yes. We need to know what your thoughts were and how big data sort of should interact with, I suppose, policy making but also clinical work yes. and other more traditional forms of research. Yeah, well, uh, so big data is very important and in fact we, going back to the, the origins of medicine, and Florence Nightingale, she used to use lots of data. So we have very good data. The, the big data allows you to set the context for the individual clinical trial. So it's very important that we, we do have the background information. Um, UK Biobank is a, good, is, is a really uh, interesting example of how very large data sets can, can uh, be important. Um, I got involved in Biobank almost by chance because uh, I was working in Oxford and uh, organising a conference and uh, which was a, a, a considerable challenge, let's say, to get everybody to agree. So <laughs> one of my, I realised that one of my core skills is being able to take a group of a dozen or so people with very different views and to get them to work together and to get them to share ideas and recognise what each other has to offer. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of about three skills that I've, that I've worked <laughs> on. And it's got me a long way. Um, it certainly, when I was doing, we did, we did this at the conference very successfully, and uh, uh, one of the senior researchers then said, well, if you can do that, you might be able to organise Biobank for us and <laughs> encourage me to apply. Um, so Biobank is, is, is important because it was a very long-term view. Yeah. So the funders took the view that investing £60 million, which is a lot of money at the time, um, was justified, even though the results might not be available for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that, took, that was heavily criticised at the time. So the first thing going into that, uh, you have to be able to withstand criticism. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a second skill. Uh, just because uh, most people tell you that you're wrong doesn't mean that you're wrong if you feel yourself that you're right. Uh, and being able to go into a room of a large number of people who disagree with you and hold your ground is, mm -hmm. is important. Um, and then the other thing about uh, Biobank is that it's, um, it's really, although it was funded as a genetic study, it's really a study of the common causes of, of common illnesses. So being prepared to look at things on their merits and to value things according to their intrinsic value is important. Don't just study a very small area because it's easy to study and you can get your grant and you can get your paper. You, you, you need to study the things which are important, mm -hmm. even if they're not the easiest things to study. So I suppose the sort of key message from that is that it's important to formulate a clear and useful research question before you start on, start the, on something. The question is more important than the answer. If you have the right question, mm -hmm. uh, sooner or later somebody will come up with a way of answering it. Um, and, and another related to that actually is this um, uh, 
there's another rule which is that you, you, you have to expect, particularly in public health, and actually in other ways, you have to expect not to get the credit for your contribution. <laughs> that's, uh, that's certainly, I think, uh, you know, many people in public health would say that. I mean, sometimes you do, and that's nice, but you, the, f uh, the, the first step towards achieving something is to be clear that you may not get the credit for it. So you're often you're often starting something which somebody else will finish, yes, um, and you may. This is a very long term. And long term, most things most things that are worth doing take a long time. Uh, they're worth revisiting, um, and if you if you don't succeed the first time, you just try again when the, the opportunity is better. If I take you back to when you were uh, R and D or doing research development mm -hmm. with the John Mac, um I'm sure you must have had to screen a lot of research protocols. What sort of things would mark something out as being a good, a good yeah. idea or a good study? Yeah. Well, again, I took a pretty simple approach to this. That um, the one thing I wanted to achieve in Oxford was to get the basic scientists to work more closely with the clinical uh, scientists and practitioners, um, because I thought that would have better questions and more direct relevant clinical practice. So at the time, I had a budget of about a, a substantial budget to fund research. So I top sliced the budget. And then people had to bid back for it, but they had to demonstrate that they had a joint application from a basic science uh, university person and a clinician. And it worked wonders. They, people raised the challenge, and we got a whole series of excellent work, uh, which was of more direct relevance. So a relatively simple, um, transparent intervention like that can make a big difference. Do you, do you think it's important to have clinicians involved? In I, I think it's crucial. I think uh, clinicians need to be involved at every stage of research, at shaping the question, at helping to translate the question into a research study, and in terms of using the results of the research study once they're available. Um, and only if we do that, and it's not just clinicians, of course, it's patients mm -hmm. as well. Um, and in fact, anybody who has an interest in the results, so managers, commissioners, uh, politicians even sometimes. When you were making the sort of transition from being a full-time clinician to getting involved mm. in research development, um, did you have any barriers or challenges at that time? Because it, clearly, it's a very two different, very different roles. Yes, um, certainly. And uh, I mean, the biggest barrier I had was that I hadn't done formal academic training, so I haven't right, got a doctorate. Okay. So I've got, I think I've got three chairs, but I don't have a doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and uh, this, this, of course, is slightly un. Unorthodox, let's yeah, say. Um, so what, uh, what I did was to um, focus on work where I was working in collaboration with um, service people mm. uh, and indeed with uh, more sort of what you might call hardcore academics. Um, and, uh, and that worked very well. And I, often I had to go out and get my own funding. Yeah. So I would, um, for some time, I was working for the Department of Health running um, the Clinical Standards Advisory Group academic support doing secondary research, which was more directly useful, and in fact I think probably had more impact than most primary research, um, because I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been able to get a grant for primary research because I haven't got the track record. I mean, I think that's really interesting because for a lot of trainees who want to get involved in research, one mm. of the worries is that, uh, I suppose number one, will I have enough time, but number two, yeah. I've not had any formal training in yeah. research or knowledge or statistics, and it's interesting that you were able to achieve all of this without, yeah. without having that. Well, it's almost an advantage because um, there, for understandable reasons, people who decide they want to be in research follow the research route, 
Um, but of course, they're up there competing with lots of other very bright people who are also trying to do the same. Whereas, it's a, it's, I think it's still the case that there are far fewer people working at the other end of the research process mm -hmm. in trying to take research, understand what it means, and apply it into practice. Uh, and there's therefore a much bigger return on the time you spend doing that uh, than there is in doing primary research. I mean, it's obviously very helpful to have done primary research, and that's a, it's a great skill, uh, and it's a good background. But I don't think people should be put off. I mean, the Cochrane is a fantastic example. There is so much that could be done by people who understand research methodology and can look at the literature and translate that into meaningful um, and as Chief Knowledge Officer, yeah. what exactly is that? <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great title, isn't it? Um, well, I, I run, I do two things really. I run the uh, data functions for public health. So I run the cancer registries, um, disease registration. I'm, uh, one of the things I've done quite a lot of, I've done quite a lot of work on disease registration and written about it. Um, so we run the um, congenital anomaly and rare disease registers, which are a phenomenal resource. We now have, I mean, once you get into a position like mine, you are able sometimes to change things, which is yeah. which is the biggest joy. So when we took on uh, the birth defect registers, we had just less than half the births covered, and we now got up to 100%. So we, for the first time, we are reporting um, all uh, congenital anomalies. And if you walk, if you ask people in the streets in London, uh, did you realise that people don't even bother to count the number of children born with birth defects, despite the fact that very important for the health service and for other people would be astonished. But we now do. Um, so I do uh, disease registration and then the other thing I do is the knowledge and intelligence function. So we produce outputs, we turn the data and information into outputs for local authorities which helps guide public health policy. So what you're doing directly feeds into healthcare policy and how people decide? It does. Um, I think it does, and we have some evidence. So we produce the, uh, we've organised um, uh, mental health intelligence networks and uh, cardiovascular intelligence networks. So um, we uh, use those networks to integrate the data, the routine data, with the research evidence and with people's experience. So we, these are the, um, call the three forms of knowledge. And if you put those three together, you can really change the way people think about it. Um, one final question for you. Uh, if you were to go back to the beginning of your career, mm. give yourself a piece of advice, <laughs> what, what do you think that would be? I think it would be to uh, decide for yourself what's important about what you do, um, and then try and apply that to whatever opportunities come along. Um, I do like, uh, if you ask me for one example, I think uh, always volunteer for things which you think are interesting, uh, even if you can't see the immediate benefit. Because time and again, I found that by volunteering for something that nobody else thought was worthwhile, I found myself in a position where people asked me to do some really interesting things. And then people say, well, why did they ask John to do that? I would have liked to do that. And it's because I'd done a whole lot of other things, yeah. uh, which, uh, which nobody else wanted to do. Um, so that would be my one piece of advice. Well, thank you very much. It was a very interesting and inspiring interview. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. This podcast was presented by Rachel, produced by Jack, and narrated by me, Farrow. Join us next time. Follow us on Twitter at Cochrane UK and join the conversation with hashtag Cochrane Trainings.